Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, November 2nd, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Writer, Squatron Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. So it was Halloween over the weekend. I wanted to check in with you guys and see what, what you guys did. I um, didn't do much of anything. We watched TV. I did a live stream on Ordinary Adventures because we've been doing um, we're doing these uh, live streams talking about Mandalorian, like the new Mandalorian episodes, uh, in addition to what I do on this podcast um, with with Brad and um, Brian. So, uh, yeah, that's what, what we did on Hallway Night is we did a, a live stream. So fun, fun, fun. But w- I live in uh, I, I live in a city where there really isn't a lot of trick or treating. And also I live in a you know condo, an apartment complex where there's really way, no way to get to my door to you know, hand out trick or uh, hand out treats. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So yeah, Halloween was very boring for me. Brad, wh- what did you do? 
Uh, so mine was, uh, I guess, a little bit more exciting, quote unquote, maybe. Um, you know, I mean, obviously there's not a ton to do because of just the general everything going on. Uh, but a friend of mine who normally has uh, an annual Halloween party just had a much, much smaller socially distanced bonfire gathering where he encouraged me and uh, like the like eight or so of our close friends to dress up in costumes um, just to get together and uh, hang out and catch up and whatnot. And so that's what we did. We went over there and I had a bonfire for uh, two or three hours and just hung out. And uh, my girlfriend, Brittany and I dressed up as uh, Adam and Barbara from uh, Beetlejuice wearing the clothes that they are stuck in for the entirety of the movie. And then we also got uh, sheets and cut out eye holes to put over so that we we walked up to the bonfire um, <laughs> with the sheets just quietly not saying anything to anyone and they, they, were, they were like uh okay because they were kind of freaked out because they didn't, weren't sure who we were and then we lifted the sheets to show you know who we were so that, it was pretty fun yeah i saw your photos on instagram or facebook one of the two i think probably all social media channels i posted them on <laughs> yeah uh, it looked good uh, speaking of Beetlejuice, over the weekend, like, as I've mentioned before, Halloween Horror Nights in Orlando, Florida was canceled this year because of the pandemic. They had two houses running, but over the weekend, uh, one of the big houses this year was supposed to be Beetlejuice. And over the weekend, they decided to actually let people into this Beetlejuice maze. It was only open for two days, Saturday and Sunday. And I think it might have had to do something to do with... Uh, contractual obligations like they were obligated to open it for at least two days or something because it's weird that it was only open for two days but everybody said it was fantastic there's no photos or videos allowed so you can't find it online but i i was one of the things this weekend i was bummed that i wasn't in florida to experience that but um jacob what have you been up what were you doing for halloween uh, socially distanced trick-or-treating, we put candy on a little table at the end of our driveway, or our front walk-up. We, My wife and I sat on the porch, uh, had a half-assed costume, where I just put on an Aya Akimoto <laughs> prop over whatever clothes I was wearing. And we had like a handful of trick-or-treaters, then we went inside, and we watched through our doorbell camera as a bunch of teenagers stole the rest of our candy. Uh, so that was my Halloween. That was it. Teenagers, terrifying youths, made off with our candy. Was it all funny? Like, did they like, like you you rewatched the video? I assume so. Like, did you like? Did they like steal the whole container? Like, what happened? No, we had like individually wrapped packages of candy, like little baggies full of you know four or five can- little pieces of candy. And they just walked up and they uh-huh. started filling their bags with all of our candy, left one behind. Jacob, I, I noticed that you also put out a cooler with beverages <laughs> for adults. Did the teens make off with those too? Uh, we brought those in. We did not leave uh, the, 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 the uh, adult beverages out. But yeah, for the past few years, we have a, we've had a cooler uh, full of white claw for the parents, and it's proven very popular. And we did have one kid try to try to take a white claw. He said it was for his mom, and we said, "Nope, bring your mom back here. You can get it then." Uh, uh, yeah, I, I encourage this. Like you know, if if you uh, parents seem to really appreciate it and enjoy it if you offer something to them because they're out there working. Trick or treating is fun for kids, but it's work for the parents. So we try to at least give the parents thing to enjoy this sounds like something that could only happen in texas like it would never be allowed to happen in southern california and you should move because this because if you can't drink in public what's the damn point <laughs> of living in that state i'm, I'm, I'm mostly joking yeah. but i also i 
I went to college in Savannah, Georgia, where open container laws say you can have the hardest liquor you want as long as there is a sippy cup lid on it. You can walk around drinking it. So I'm used to living in places where you can just be drunk in public as long as you're not embarrassing yourself or hurting people. Uh, it's totally acceptable. Okay. Uh, HT, what did you do on Halloween? So I didn't actually do anything on Halloween night. Um, I had a crazy night doing laundry while watching Hitchcock movies, so... That's if that counts as celebrations. But um, Friday night before Halloween, um, my friends and I got together. I actually went to my old roommate's new apartment and we watched Rocky Horror Picture Show, which um, was actually really fun because several of them hadn't seen Rocky Horror before. And um, I'd only seen it in like these big, you know, group midnight screening gatherings. So I wondered whether it would be as fun in a much smaller gathering with people who hadn't watched it before. But it was still really fun. And, uh, you know, a raucous good time. Tim Curry just uh, chewing up that scenery, looking fabulous. So it's always a good time with Rocky Horror. Ben, what did you do for Halloween? Uh, not much. I, I went across town and visited my nieces. Um, they it, it sounded like a they had a setup that was similar to what Jacob's was, where basically people were just like sitting out on the driveway, and they had a little table with candy and stuff at the end, and uh, everybody was dressed up. My um, uh, sister and brother in law and and their significant others were all dressed up, and uh, w- basically we just went over and and sort of like stayed away from everybody and hung out with these little you know, my uh, really cute nieces who are all, you know, there's three of them and they're the ages of one to three, basically. And um, they were dressed up as characters from Paw Patrol, which I don't know what that is, but evidently it's huge among kids. And uh, one of them was a, a tiny pumpkin. So yeah, just a, you know, cuteness overload, basically. But that was it. Chris, you don't have your name on this list, but I have to ask you because you are Mr. Halloween. You must have done something on Halloween night. Um, not really. Uh, no, <laughs> we just, we just hung out. I'm, I'm in a, uh, I'm in a really bad place right now, so we're not really doing anything. So, you know, we watched some horror movies. We, we drank a lot of alcohol and, you know, that was really it. Nothing, nothing extraordinary. You know, it, 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 it is what it is. Well, hopefully this week we'll have some good news for you. Maybe. Uh, the human race at no, large, yeah. Peter. Yeah, not just for me, Peter. I'm, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm flattered that it should just be for me, but I would also like for everyone else to have some good news. Also. <laughs> yes. Okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been doing outside of that. Uh, this past week, I went to Downtown Disney to check out their new Christmas merch because they've released the Christmas merch a week before Halloween. So it seems like all the holidays are starting earlier than they ever have before because I remember. I think the first time we did a video looking for Halloween merch, I think was like in July or August, something like that. It was like way earlier than it seemed like it normally was. So I'm like wondering, what is that? Like, obviously, like a company like Disney has overproduced this merchandise because assuming the parks were going to be open and they're, you know, Disneyland is not open. So I'm guessing they would just want to get the merch out so people can buy it so that they won't be stuck with as much of it. But that said, you know, uh, Kitcher was at Target this past week and they already have their Christmas stuff out. So uh, I, have, I it, want to chime in here, Peter, because yeah. when I was in high school, I used to work at a Hallmark, which is a, you know, fun, very fun job for a 15 year old. Um, and they have these special, I mean, I'm sure you know the Hallmark ornaments, uh, Christmas ornaments. Yeah. And we always put them out in August. 
every year. And I always thought it was insanely early to put them out, but people would like, as soon as they were out, they would jump on them and buy them. People were waiting for those Christmas ornaments because they're premier stuff. So uh, yeah, I guess August has always been kind of that Christmas Christmas merch time. But I feel like Hallmark's different. Like they have their premiere thing in like, what is it, June or July, where they have their first like like 200 ornaments come out. Um, That's true. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty insane. But I don't know. It just feels like it's earlier to me. Like, I've been a component of uh, – a proponent, not component, proponent of saying, like, we put the Christmas tree up on November 1st. After Halloween goes down, it, Christmas the Christmas season begins, and that's kind of like uh, how Disneyland celebrates Christmas. Is once the Halloween decorations come down, the, the trees and the garland and everything goes up. And everybody, I, I feel like, has – treated that kind of like oh you're nuts peter like to start celebrating christmas so early but it i don't know it seems weird that like the stores like big box stores like target are celebrating or or putting the christmas stuff in like mid-october i don't know peter my wife put up our tree yesterday so uh, apparently my wife's holiday rules are also immediately post-halloween growing up my rules my family was always after thanksgiving tree goes up but in my wife's home, it is day after Halloween. So I guess my wife also follows Disneyland rules. Yeah, yes. see, we, we usually do that too. Uh, but this year, my girlfriend and I were also talking about starting decorating for Christmas this week just because it's, you know, why not? Like, we just, we need something to, to help right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm actually like, weirdly this year, feeling like I don't want to take my Halloween decorations down. Because it's the first year that like we went all out and celebrated Halloween and we have like tons of decorations. I'm still like feeling it. I don't want to move on. Just make it just make like... it a nightmare before Christmas house. Yeah, yeah, true. A lot of people do that. See, so keep it up. Wait, so when do you put those up, Brad? Like August, and then it goes till the end of December. Sure, just just live your dream, Peter. <laughs> uh, Jacob, what else have you been up to this week? I voted. Well, I voted actually a little over a week ago, but I'm just not having a chance to talk about it. And if you haven't voted yet, uh. You should vote tomorrow. You should in person put on a mask, drive down your polling station, and do it. Ask for time away from work if you need to. Go on your lunch hour. Go before work. Go after work. Go vote. I encourage that you participate in democracy this year above all years. Thank you. I agree. I think we all agree. Uh, HD, you voted this week. I did. Well, last week as well. Um, I voted on the first day of early voting for New York, which was uh, October 24th. And uh, I made the mistake of not getting there two hours early because I got there around the time that it opened at 10 a.m. And I had to wait two hours in line, just all around the block that this building, this community college was on. So it was a long time, but I I made it through and I I voted. But yes, um, the it takes a long time sometimes, and I think it was mostly because it was early, the first day of early voting, so people were very eager to get out the vote, which was very encouraging to see. But uh, definitely do your civic duty and go out to vote if you can. I know this is coming the day before the actual election day, but uh, if you can go early as well, do it. And uh, what else have you been doing this week? 
Um, I guested on Nerdist News Talks Back uh, on a recent episode to talk about the Moon Knight casting of Oscar Isaac and various other news items. And it was a lot of fun. This is my first time on Nerdist News Talks Back. I was really excited to be invited by Dan Casey and talk with uh, the other guests who were on there. And uh, it was just a, a good time talking for about an hour on this kind of roundtable about various pop culture and geeky news items. And uh, I hope they'll have me back at some point. Very cool. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, let's move on to what we've been reading. Jacob, you're the you're the only person that has been reading anything this week. What have you been reading? I started reading The Office, the untold story of the greatest sitcom of the 2000s in oral history by Andy Green. And it's good so far. It is full of lots of good trivia and factoids and a lot of people talking about The Office. And so far, I'm concerned because everybody on that set seems to like each other a lot to the point where most of the stories people are sharing looking back and making the show is, yeah, so-and-so was really nice. Yeah, so-and-so was really funny. At first, I wasn't so sure, but then I realized, oh, we like each other. So it's a, it's a really, really fun, pleasant read. Not a lot of drama to it so far. I'm very curious about how honest everybody gets toward the end of the run, because nowadays, everybody's pretty quick to point out that The Office's final two seasons aren't very good. And uh, early on, it suggests maybe it will, because the opening chapter is a sort of a flash forward to Steve Carell's final episode and how it's mentioned in the book by Andy Green writing as himself that the show does not live up to its former glories in the final two seasons. So I'm hoping that the home stretch will offer some actual, you know, insight into what went wrong with the final two seasons and how the show struggled. But if you're a fan of the show, I mean, it's really, really fun. It's really, really fun reading. And there's some really illuminating trivia or things that are more illuminated than they were before. Like it's, it's known that Bob Odenkirk was very, very, very close to getting the Michael Scott role that Steve Carell eventually uh, landed. But what I did not know is that apparently Bob Odenkirk wanted it real bad. And the phone call, it goes to like the phone call they had to make to him <laughs> say you didn't, you didn't get it and about how in the, in the, in the footage, uh, Steve Carell was a buffoon, whereas Bob Odenkirk was an asshole. And they realized that we is going to be a lead character. He's got to be a buffoon, not an asshole. And, so even though I knew Bob Odenkirk was up for that part, you know, there's, there's a lot of illumination, a lot of stuff like that, where it's like familiar trivia, but they go deeper on it. Uh, Brad, this is a must read. You, you need to read uh, this book. I, I've actually talked about this uh, before. I'm, I haven't finished it yet. I, I'm about halfway through. I just I've, I dropped it and then I haven't picked it back up yet. But yeah, I, everything I've read so far, it's it's such a fascinating insight into the making of the show. Oh, see, I see. I've totally forgotten you mentioned it. Um, since you're a little further ahead of me, I'm assuming uh, I'm, I'm around season three in the book right now. They just wrapped up season three. Um, have it gotten to like the more negative aspects of the show yet, or is it, is it going to be pretty fluffy all the way through? They've they've talked about little details of things that they felt like they struggled with, but it hasn't gotten to the point where they've dug into any of the um, the later seasons where it really started to feel like it wasn't uh, the office anymore, like it, where it just really fell apart quality wise. So I, I haven't reached that point either yet. Okay, uh, you know I I forgot about this. I I guess I I will talk about something I've been reading. Um, I was sent from Lucasfilm a bunch of books, comics uh, for their new, the new era of Star Wars, The High Republic. Uh, this is a publishing initiative. It's set 200 years before uh, Star Wars, the Star Wars prequels. Um, there's a big embargo on this because I think these books don't come out until the end of the year, early next, something Jan- like that. January is, January? When, yeah, is when the first two books get published. That said... Star Wars, The High Republic, Light of the Jedi, which is written by Charles Soule, who is one of the best writers in Star Wars today, in my opinion. Uh, The first chapter of that is available on IGN, 
it was published in what, like uh, June or something. So while I can't talk about the book, I can talk about this first chapter because it's available for everybody to read. Um, and I want to say this first chapter is incredible. Uh, I or not, I want to say incredible, but it's very, very good. It reminds me of like the opening of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, not to give too much out. It's actually very, very much more Star Trek than it is Star Wars. I'm, I'm almost tempted to recommend it to, to you, Jacob, because I know how much you love Star Trek. Um, to see what you think of this first chapter. Maybe I'll send you the link. Um, yeah, please. It's, it's pretty um, quick. I'm very, very hesitant toward falling down the rabbit hole of Star Wars and Star Trek books. Because I have so many <laughs> so many books to read otherwise. I've dedicated so much of my life to Star Wars and Star Trek that to find books too. And I, it, Peter, I'm not this rabbit hole. If you push me down, I may never forgive you, but you can try. <sighs> well, the good thing about this book is this book is kind of like the, the inciting incident that is going to like you know, lead into all these books and comics that you don't necessarily have to read all the books and comics, but this is like the, you know, the movie of the, you know, if, if there's if like everything else is like TV and books and video games, like this is like the big, big event movie. And this first chapter follows a captain who is like, they're traveling through this hyperspace lane and it leads to this big, climactic event that is going to change the course of the galaxy but it's it's done in such like a i hate to keep on comparing it to jj abrams and star trek but it's done in such a like personal way that i i don't know i, I just love the angle on this uh i'm very much looking forward to reading the whole book i don't actually have the whole book they sent me like a preview i think the first half of the book or something like that um but yeah so uh check it out I'll i'll put a link to that in the show notes um, but let's move on to what we've been watching. And um, I think a couple weeks ago I was on here and I was talking about this show called Seduced Inside the Nexium Cult. This is on Stars, which I got a free uh, a free preview of uh, through like Apple TV or something. Um, and this is um, it's about Nexium Cult. I, I, I talked at length about the show the vow which is on hbo uh this show is a little bit shorter it's like four episodes i've watched the first three the fourth one comes next week um i think when i talked about the first episode i called it a cliff notes version of the story and that was before i kind of got into episode two and i think that's a bit unfair uh in retrospect uh, this this story is told from the main perspective of a woman who became a slave in this DOS organization and, uh, you know, branded, uh, basically forced to have sex with certain people in the organization. Uh, I think seeing the story told primarily through this one woman's perspective is so much more powerful. And it, it, like, it, like you're getting, a lot more details in it and it, it, it getting into more icky details. So, I mean, I, I think um, where the other one kind of, uh, you know, broadly tells you what happened. This one, you actually hear stories of what she went through. And uh, also uh, worth mentioning is one of the main perspectives of the vow is this guy named Mark, who uh, was the director of um, what the bleep do we know? And he became a big person in, the Nexium organization and it, uh, it kind of followed him and his like, you know, his discovery of 
that this organization was a cult and him leaving the organization. I will say seeing the story from this other person's side, seeing the story from uh, the, the main protagonist of, of, of this documentary seri- series, it's in, her name's India. Um, I don't know. I'm not quite sure Mark was as uh, innocent as the the other documentary makes out. And she, he doesn't participate in this documentary. And uh, there's he seems a lot more complicit. And uh, it's very hard to believe that that he didn't know at times that stuff was going on. So uh, I, I know I said uh, last time that this this is a great companion documentary. It's it's kind of like watching both of the Fire Festival documentaries. Um, but I, I think this is the better of the two. I think it's still worth watching both of them. Seduced, I think, is more about the psychology of how Keith Raniere was able to break down so many of these young women and what he did with them. And uh, I think uh, I, I think it's definitely something worth watching. So anyways, um, that is called Seduced Inside the Nexium Cult. And that is on Stars right now. And uh, also, over the weekend, we watched Sofia Coppola's new movie. This is the A24 film. It's released on Apple TV. Um, it's called On the Rocks. And this is about a woman uh, who begins to believe that her husband might be cheating on her. Um, she's at a crossroads in life. She's like tasked to write this book. She's having, uh, she's facing uh, creative writer's block. And uh, also, you know, it doesn't help that she thinks like her husband's probably cheating on her. And uh, she doesn't have this good relationship with her father. Her father's played by Bill Murray. And uh, they kind of uh, reconnect over is her husband cheating on her? Is she not? Um, it's it's kind of like their adventures through New York and beyond, New York City and beyond. It's a father-daughter relationship. It's um, also this. It's probably her most conventional film, and it's probably more approachable by general audiences than at least her work in the last 10 years. Um, Bill Murray is a lot of fun in this. Uh, I liked it. I didn't love it um, in ways. I, I wonder, like, even though this is her most conventional film and is more approachable, and I'm guessing I didn't even look on, like, Rotten Tomatoes or see what the reviews are, but, like, I'm assuming... Well, Peter, you can check out my review on Slash Film. <laughs> uh, did, did, did you like it? I liked it. I didn't love it the same as you. I think that because it's so conventional and frothy that it feels almost unlike a Sofia Coppola movie. It doesn't really feel like a film that she would typically direct. And even her signature brand of like ennui and everything is kind of missing from the movie, um, which, you know, some people could love or, or t- could give or take, but um, I, I like that with her films. And I think that while the performances are really fun and Bill Murray and Rashida Jones are really fun to watch together, uh, I just felt kind of, yeah, okay about it. In ways, even though this feels like her most broad film in a while and most conventional film in a while, I wonder if this might be her most personal film yet. And I say that because in the end, this is about like, you know, a woman trying to find her own life, but like she's living in the shadow of like this, you know, 
father figure who's like a well-known life of the party. Like, I don't know. It feels like there's something there that she was trying to tackle. I don't think it's completely successful. What, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think there are seeds of that there, especially with both Sofia Coppola and Rashida Jones, both of whom have very famous, very bigger than life fathers. And I think they bring some of that personal person personal experience to the movie. Um, I just think that the movie is too slight to really grapple with all of it, but it's yeah. it's still an enjoyable watch. I feel like the stuff with the relationship feels more conventional, but the stuff with the father-daughter relationship mm-hmm. uh, is the stuff I gravitated towards more. Yeah, like the final this. scenes towards the end of the movie between Bill Murray and Rashida Jones are really yeah. good. Like that was where I was like, oh, okay, I really like this part. Yeah, so even though I didn't love it, I would still recommend checking it out if you have Apple TV, and especially if you like uh, Bill Murray or Rashida Jones. Um, it's it's worth watching, I think. Uh, would you say it's worth watching, or did you say skip it? Oh, yeah, I'd say it's worth watching. i say it's like you don't have to totally pay attention to it. It's kind of a good movie to put on. <laughs> like, not in the background. Like, do pay attention to it. But it's like it doesn't, it's not something that completely challenges or strains you. That, that makes it sound so bad. But I know. okay. <laughs> Um, the other thing I wanted to plug is two, uh, episodes of YouTube, uh, channels that I watched this past week. Uh, this guy named Justin Scard, he's a vlogger, he's in Southern California, he's a, I guess a friend or acquaintance of mine. Um, he has been, he went out traveling and he went to Astoria and he did a video touring the filming locations from Goonies. Um, which I thought was really enjoyable and fun. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I just wanted to recommend that if you like the Goonies and you want to see that. Uh, it's kind of funny. They've, I, I didn't realize this, but in Astoria, they turned the, that opening. The opening scene takes place in that jail with the Fertellis in the jail. And they've turned that into like a museum of sorts, which I had no idea. Um, but he shows all that in this video. Uh, and I think it's very well made, even though he only had a day there. Um you know, he got to a bunch of the filming locations. And the other one I want to recommend is from my friend, Adam, the woo. He has been traveling across the United States back from Florida where he was visiting his uh, family and going to theme parks. Uh, he recently uh, posted a video uh, where he stayed overnight at the Christmas story house. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, the house that was in a Christmas story is actually a real house. A lot of the movie was actually filmed in and around that house. Uh, whereas, you know, most movies it's like filmed on a soundstage and they don't actually use the interiors. Uh, they've turned that house into a museum. Uh, it's a tourist attraction where you can buy tickets and get a tour and you get, you actually get to see some of this tour here. I knew about all that. I didn't know that they've actually started like, I guess it's like an Airbnb where you can rent out, uh, and stay in the house itself. So he did that on the trip and uh that was just funny to see so I, i'll put a link to that also in the show notes um but uh it was a good combo there um brad what have you been watching um i watched a couple halloween things uh leading up to the weekend uh one of them was haunters the art of the scare uh which is a documentary by john schnitzer that focuses on uh people who um work in haunted houses like to scare people or create their own uh haunted houses spending tons of money to create an attraction that people come and check out 
uh, every Halloween. And uh, it digs into, you know, just what it's like to kind of to to create these things and what what it takes. But it also dives into the uh, this kind of separation that has grown among the haunted house community of how far is too far and what constitutes, you know, a real haunted house. Because I guess there's been this rise in these uh, haunted house experiences where it's turned into more of like people messing with you physically, like touching you and grabbing you and like wrapping saran wrap around your face or taping your hands together or like making you eat gross things. And like people know what they're getting into with some of these things, but like seeing how far they take some of this stuff is really unsettling and disturbing. Cause some of these people, like not all of them, but some of them seem like twisted sociopaths who are like getting their jollies from like, you know, essentially legally torturing people just because they're willing to do it. But seeing how genuinely scared and like traumatized some of these people are, it's just, it's very creepy. And like, it's, it's kind of weird because this documentary goes back and forth between like, all of a sudden you'll be like, oh, this guy is weird. But then it shows you, oh, wait a minute. He donates all of the, the uh, he or the, the admission for people to come into his creepy haunted house where he tortures people is uh, dog food that he gives to an animal shelter. And then like, oh, he, you know, he um, comes from this like uh, loving family. And like, you know, maybe he does this because as a way of like, you know, living, living out like this dream of entertaining people. And, and then it goes back to showing, oh, nope, this guy's a real creep. Uh, and it's just, I, I was kind of frustrated because it's not really clear. Like the, the movie in some ways kind of lets you decide like how you feel about these kinds of things rather than passing any real judgment. And it, but it, it keeps him hawing back and forth, you know, playing with your emotions and how you feel about it. Um, but like, yeah, I, I was just, I was very taken aback by just, there, there's one guy in particular, he's not in it for very long. But he talked about how he's like, and like, he has this very intense look on his face. And he says, this just lets all of like, lets me live all of my wildest dreams. And no one can stop me from doing it. And he's like, he seems like he would be a murderer if he was given the opportunity. Um, but it's it's a it's a very fascinating documentary. Uh, very, very unnerving. It just makes me not ever want to experience these kinds of things. And I don't know what draws people to them. Jacob, you're a big haunted house enthusiast. I, I assume you've seen this movie. And I wonder what your feelings are about all this. Yeah, I think the movie's good. I think it suffers because it starts off telling two stories, which is the story of traditional haunts, following a woman who's a lifelong scare actor, her her main career, she's suffering from back problems because of it, and also following the more extreme figures. And, the, and I feel like eventually the movie starts coming more about the extreme haunts, and it kind of forgets about the more traditional haunts, when I find that stuff far more interesting and more satisfying, because I would never do an extreme haunt where you sign a waiver to be waterboarded, which is what these other ones are. Um... I will say that uh, when I saw this at Fantastic Fest years ago, I interviewed the director, and he's there with the with one of the subjects, the woman who is the scare actor, and I asked her directly about the extreme haunts, and particularly um, a guy named McKamey, who's one of the uh, main subjects in it, and she flat out said to my face, "He is not. He does, he's he's a sadist. He does not run a haunted house. He does not represent our community." And she was so passionate and angry at this guy's existence and how he taints what she thinks is like you know a community otherwise full of people who love Halloween, love spooky stuff. And I kind of wish that was in the movie as opposed to being an interview with me. Have uh, Jacob, I know you've seen the American scream, but uh, Brad, have you seen the American scream? Yeah. I, I watched that. Yeah. A long, long time ago. What, how, when did that come out? That came out in like early 2010s or something like that. Yeah. And that's more about like wholesome home haunts where people like spend all year to build 
like these things in their backyards. And I, I, I actually much prefer that documentary over this one. Yeah, I agree. Uh, what else have you been watching? Uh, I watched another horror documentary um, called Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. And uh, this is this is on Shudder, but it was on Amazon Prime for uh, a little bit, um, only until Halloween, though. So if you want to watch it, you will have to watch it on Shudder. Um, but this is a documentary um, essentially about the evolution of the role that black actors and actresses have played in the horror genre over the years. Um, and it's a very um, kind of just a, a horror fundamental sort of documentary that goes back all the way to, you know, the early years of, of silent film and whatnot, and just how the presence of uh, black people grew over the years and how they have gone from, you know, just being these sort of uh, sidekick characters who were uh, just there to um, essentially play as as fodder to be killed so that, you know, the white people would be like, oh, something is, is happening. We have to get out of here. Um, and just how it continued, you know, with uh, to give them more of a prominent role through either the living dead and then going through Candyman and all this sort of thing. And it's, um, it's a, it's, it's more surface level, I guess, than I was anticipating. There's still some stuff that I didn't know about, you know, certain niche movies, uh, B movies and things that I hadn't heard of before. Um, it's, I think for, for more hardcore cinephiles, you probably won't learn a lot of new things about it, especially if you're a big horror fan. But for anybody who, you know, hasn't really dived into the subject like this before, there's uh, a lot of, you know, in- interesting details and important milestones to to be aware of and just see, you know, how the, the baton has kind of been passed over the years. Um, and it's nice to see, you know, filmmakers like uh, Jordan Peele t- talk about it as well. Funnily enough, he... He, um, they talk about the people under the stairs in this movie, and I, I watched this just before the news was announced that he was uh, producing a remake of that movie. Um, but they talk to a wide variety of uh, black, black actors and uh, producers, directors, authors, and um, pop culture writers and that kind of thing to really provide uh, a lot of a lot of perspective. Uh, on the subject so yeah if, if you if you're a big fan of these kinds of you know um cinema history documentaries then i i would definitely recommend checking it out very cool and wh- where is that available uh on shutter it's, uh, it's only on shutter i watched it on amazon prime but it's not there anymore uh, okay what else have you been watching um i rewatched back to the future part two because um my my girlfriend Brittany, had not seen it um for she actually hadn't seen the original back to the future since uh, a while back, but I, I, I sat her down to watch it. She had, she had seen bits and pieces of it um, because she, she grew up in Zimbabwe uh, in Africa. And so they didn't get easy access to a lot of movies, even on home video. And so she would only ever see bits and pieces of it uh, if she was over at a, a cousin's house who had a little bit more um, easy to get those kinds of things because they had more wealthy parents. Um, so she had seen little things here and there, but never really saw the whole movie. And so uh, she enjoyed the first Back to the Future. At, she was hesitant to watch the second one because she's heard me and friends talk about how it's not as good as the first one because the first one's, you know, a near perfect movie. So I've had to convince her for a while to actually sit down and watch it because it's like, no, you don't understand. Like Back to the Future Part 2 is still really fun. Like it's just, it's, it, it's hard to, you know, compare as far as quality because it's a different kind of movie and it gets a little bit goofier, but it's there's still a lot of cool things and I still love it so much. And so we watched it and um, I, I still do love this movie. You know, it's for the longest time when I was a kid, this was my favorite one, but it was mostly just because of how much I loved the stuff in the future, you know, from the flying DeLorean to the hoverboards and ju- just all of that, all that kind of, uh, all of those details. Um, and I think what I appreciate now more so as an adult is just how intricately um, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale weaved the story th- when they went back to the original movie and just how cleverly they a- were able to 
get Marty like back into all the events from the first movie and things that were off screen that could have easily been happening that we didn't see when you watched the first movie. Um, and it's just, it's very well, well done. Um, like there's just so many little details that they, they honed in on that they were able to be like, Oh, actually, you know, Marty can run through here and, you know, knock himself out with the door and he wouldn't, you know, be, you know, know the other, otherwise what was going on. Uh, and so I just, I really appreciate the things like that. And, it's uh yeah it's just it's still fun I, I will always love all the back to the future movies um but uh yeah it's it's up the two and three as we you know m- many of us know it suffers from that same problem that like uh the matrix reloaded and revolutions had where it was very clear they shot them uh back to back and like had a lot of details they created to be in sync with each other so they feel somewhat separated from one um but they're they very much have connective tissue to each other uh, and they're still, like I said, still enjoyable on their own. Yeah, I agree. When I was a kid, I loved Back to the Future Part 2 for the reasons you say, because it, the future stuff, but also the cleverness of that, um, the 1955 stuff and how, I don't know, I, I think as a kid, I was just like so obsessed with like the idea of like what would happen if you changed time and, you know, and I feel like two plays around around with that a lot more than one does or three yeah um yeah so anyways yeah uh back to future part two hot take it's good (laughs) yeah um and then uh, so something i'm not excited to talk about this i want to get this out of the way but i'm talking about it (laughs) i'm talking about it just because it's so ridiculous and i can't help but just 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 mention it so uh, i've talked about before how my girlfriend has a, a predilection towards watching some some trashy tv shows here and there that's how we came to talk about um, whatever that Australian dating show was that I forget the name of now, where they the parents watch their their kids dating or so. what's the name of that, Peter? I forget. Uh, uh, I don't even. Yeah, remember. see, it's not even worth. It. But anyway, so she she likes to watch The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, and this season of The Bachelorette. Is, oh, Baywatch. Yes, that's it. Um, so this season of The Bachelorette is fucking bonkers because so they've brought back somebody who was on previous seasons. I have no familiarity with, but she's. She's the oldest um, bachelorette they've had. She's 39 years old. She came like close to making making it with previous bachelors before, but it never worked out. And there she was. There was always like some kind of big blow up, and she's just very dramatic. And they've there are only a few episodes into the season. I want to say like three or four episodes, but apparently leading up to it, there were all these rumors about something crazy going wrong, and they basically had to start over from scratch. And so we're, we're reaching that point because. The um the the bachelorette this year, I think her name is Claire. Um, she's first of all, she's very phony. It seems like she's always putting on a show, like you know, and and even more so than like they normally do on these kinds of shows. And she very has quickly has very quickly fallen for one of the people, and she just keeps trying to spend more and more time with this person and screwing over the rest of the dudes who are contestants on the show. And now it's gotten to the point where it's really starting to blow up and just shake up the entire format of the show, where she's not following some of the rules that she's supposed to as the as the contestant and everything. And so it's leading up to this point that they just teased at the end of recently where they bring in an entirely new bachelorette and this one leaves. So they have to start the show essentially all over again. And it's just crazy to see something like like this happen, especially since they already had to jump through all the hoops to make the show happen because of COVID-19. They had um, all the contestants like quarantined for a couple weeks. It's not taking place at the usual settings that they normally have. It's at this um, uh, res- resort um, that is like it's like an isolated ho- hotel and it's just it's so weird and it's so trashy and frustrating and ridiculous and like 
to some extent now I understand why people watch this now because it's like you just want to see this train wreck and you want to see that like more trains crash into it and making it way way worse um and that's just all it is and it is just it is frustratingly fascinating and I ha- I hate myself for for watching it <laughs> So you're going to continue watching this? I mean, my girlfriend is is watching it. So it's like, I mean, I, and I watch it with her when, when she turns around. Usually I'm doing some work or something like that while it's happening. So I'm not fully paying attention to it. But I catch enough that I'm just like constantly shaking my head and being like, oh my gosh, I, I hate this person and most of these people. <laughs> Sounds like a not so good show. It is not. It is. I don't, I, I can't recommend it. Like, don't, I, don't even don't just don't. Okay, uh, Chris, what have you been watching? Um, I saw Mank, the new David Fincher Netflix movie, and uh, the, the the social media reaction embargo is up, so I'll, I'll count that as this, but I won't say too much because the review embargo is is Friday. But um, it was it was great. It was very good. It was not really the movie I was expecting. Um, it's about uh, Herman Mankiewicz, who was the the screenwriter of Citizen Kane. And it's just all about him uh, writing the screenplay, and it, 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 it uh, I don't know. I was expecting it to be more like about the making of Citizen Kane, I guess, and that's really not what it's about. It's more about um, Mankiewicz and his politics. It's it's a very political movie, which I was really not expecting. There's like an entire subplot about how um, Upton Sinclair, who is the the guy who wrote The Jungle, and he was a journalist. Uh, was running to be um, the governor of California and he, he was running as a socialist and the, the studios and specifically um, uh, um, Christ, what's his name? The guy who's part of Charles Horses Kane. Uh, uh, William, William Randolph Hearst. William Randolph Hearst. That's oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> William Randolph Hearst was, was not happy about this. And uh, this is a thing that really happened. And I actually didn't know it until I watched Mank, but, and then I, you know, looked up and did some research on it, but, uh, William Randolph Hearst and and the studio, specifically uh, MGM, started putting together these very anti Upton Sinclair ads. And uh, since this was during the Depression, what they would do is they would they would get a bunch of um, like out of work extras, you know, not stars, not recognizable faces, and cast them to play you know regular Californians. And they would they would film these newsreels where they you know they'd have extras pretending to be uh, like Russian immigrants, and they would be like. I'm voting for Upton Sinclair because I, I'm from Russia. And, it, you know, it's basically just the beginning of really dirty political media. And uh, I really had no idea that that was so wrapped up around Citizen Kane. But, uh, you know, it is. And this movie does a good job of putting it out. And, it, you know, it's really just about how Magowitz, who, you know, supported Sinclair, was just horrified by that. And that's sort of kind of like why he burned his bridges, because he was in William Randolph Hearst's uh, inner circle. He was, you know, part of that that crowd of, of very rich people who would get together and, and you know, just have wild Hollywood parties. And, uh, you know, watching the, those same people destroy Upton Sinclair's candidacy sort of inspired him at least in the terms of this movie you know i'm sure they they took some license with what really happened but in the terms of the movie it's what inspired him to throw william randolph hearst under the bus and write this screenplay that you know paints him as you know this very unflattering figure and it it it, in a sense destroyed any relationship mankowitz had with that that in crowd but the movie is really about him 
standing up for that, like realizing that like, yes, this is going to you know burn a lot of bridges, but it's something I have to do. And, uh, you know, I just thought that was a really fascinating approach to this story because I, you know, I haven't really seen that tackled anywhere before. Like there's a movie HBO made that was about the making of Citizen Kane. It had uh, Liev Schreiber playing Orson Welles and uh, John Malkovich playing uh, Mankiewicz. And none of this is in that movie. So to, to see it like laid out like that in this movie is really not what I was expecting. And beyond that, it's just, it's just a gorgeous movie. You know, it's shot in black and white. It's, it's done in this very old fashioned way. Like there are matte paintings. And, and one thing I thought that was really fascinating is the audio. The audio is done in such a way that it's meant to sound like you're hearing it in, in like an old movie theater, if that makes sense. Like it sounds like it's echoing off of walls that aren't really there. And uh, you know, you might think that's distracting, but it works really well in the context of the film. So um, it's not, you know, it's not your typical David Fincher movie, although it is about someone like obsessing over something. And, you know, that's that is <laughs> sort of what Fincher does, but it, you know, this really doesn't feel like any of his other movies. So if, you know, don't go into it expecting like, you know, uh, gone girl 2.0 or anything like that, but, but uh, it, it's, it's a very good movie and uh, that'll be on Netflix soon. I, I, I think it's on December. It's going to be on Netflix, but uh, yeah. Mank. Okay. Uh, HD, what have you been watching? Um, what have I been watching? Oh, I have been watching a lot of Korean horror. Uh, I watched The Wailing for the first time, which I think Jacob has written quite a bit about on the site, but uh, I didn't really uh, know much so about it. So it's really good. I didn't really know much about it, except that it um, was a crime horror movie. And the premise was that a... Um, a village gets taken over by paranoia when a mysterious Japanese stranger arrives. And I kind of, and these series of brutal murders between all the villagers start happening and cropping up after his arrival. And I thought at first that this would be a, something akin to like one of those paranoid horror movies where it's really the humans who are, um, who are the monsters, but it actually turns out, turns out to be more of like a, a possession film meets a crime drama meets buddy cop comedy and it's this weird mishmash of genres that just completely works and really takes you for a ride the entire time uh when i when you start watching it it feels very reminiscent of memories of murder and then these supernatural elements start creeping in and uh it just kind of um leaves you unsettled about where this movie is going to go. And uh, Kunimuro Jun is the uh, Japanese uh, stranger who comes in. He's excellent. You've probably seen him in various other films. He was, I think, in Kill Bill, in um, a very, just like many other Japanese and American movies. And uh, he's excellent in it. And uh, it's a, it's great. It's, um, it's a long movie. It's about two and a half hours long. And I watched it. Did I watch it on Amazon? Where did I watch it? I think it's on Amazon. Somewhere. It's streaming on Amazon and Shutter, I believe. Yes, it's streaming on Amazon and Shutter, and uh, it's excellent. So that is the Wailing. Hey, real quick, I, I I know a few people who have seen the Wailing, so I just need to. Did you when the credits rolled? Were you as upset and confused in a good way as I was? I was definitely confused, uh, and yes, I was. I was. I, yeah, I was uh, very over, not overwhelmed, but just like uh, taken aback by this entire movie because it takes you on turns and it leads you down different conclusions that you 
come I came to the conclusion like halfway through the film like oh this is what happened but then it just pulls the rug out from underneath you and uh that final 10 minutes really just leaves you aghast that entire time so it's great great ending. my cat agrees I don't know if you guys heard him but my cat agrees <laughs> I didn't hear your cat but thank you cat thank you Jacob's cat um, and I also watched A Tale of Two Sisters, which was part of the new Korean cinema package on Criterion Channel. And um, I, I get spooked easily. I'm especially scared of, of uh, ghost films, which sounds like a silly thing, but I do believe that ghosts exist. So this was a very difficult movie to watch for me, especially living on my own as I am now until my new roommate arrives. So I was watching this. Um, very bad idea, watching it at night right before I went to bed. And I had to keep pausing the movie because I kept getting very frightened by this film. Um, but this is the uh, one of the movies that was at the forefront of K-horror uh, back in the early 2000s. And it would be remade as an English language film uh, that was much less well-received called The Uninvited back in 2009. And this is actually based off of a Korean folktale. Um, that I won't pretend to know how to pronounce, uh, but was really fascinating to read about and uh, creates a very intriguing plot about a girl who gets released from a mental institution and returns home to a cruel stepmother who uh, seems to be targeting and assaulting um, her younger sister while ghosts appear to be uh, haunting the house. And it has some really, really good jump scares that um, play out over... A very long few minutes um, and have that great combination of suspense and um, nothing like and that dread that is great in some J-horror movies that you see like in Ringu which you know nothing actually happens in Ringu until the, the very end and this is kind of that combination of that kind of dread and suspense with actual jump scares and some gore as well so it's it's a great it's a great movie once I actually got through it because I'm I'm a big scaredy cat, but uh, that's A Tale of Two Sisters, which is streaming now on Criterion Channel. HD, I'm sorry I keep interrupting you, but you're, you're, you're talking about movies I really like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how many of uh, Kim Ji-Woon's other horror films have you seen? Because uh, I Saw the Devil may be one of my favorite horror films of all time, and it's very intense. I think this is my first one, actually. Yeah, his filmography is worth exploring. Uh, he's made non-horror films, but his horror films in particular uh, really speak to me. Uh, he also has a movie called The Good, The Bad, The Weird, which is a big, massively budgeted uh, 1930s set Korean Western that you should definitely check out. That one I have actually seen, and it's a very weird Western in the best way. All right. I I'm done interrupting your spiel, but Kim ji is <laughs> my guy, so I'm done. I'm back. I'm leaving. All right. All right. Um, the next two movies I watched were Hitchcock movies, which I talked about earlier when during my uh, really fun Halloween night by myself with my laundry. And um, I have a Criterion Collection edition of Notorious, which I don't know if I mentioned before is my favorite Hitchcock movie because, well, romantic angst, anti-Nazi espionage, and two great suspense sequences that are centered around mundane objects like a key and a teacup that goes giant. So I really love this movie and um, decided to just pop it on and uh, watch it as sort of like a comfort film. And um, it's it's great still. Cary Grant, Ingrid, Ingrid Berman are so good together. There's, I remember really liking this film for partial, partially because of some of the trivia around it too, because um, this film uh, had one of the longest kiss sequences um, 
in cinematic history, at least as of the time that it was uh, released. And the way that Hitchcock uh, pulled it off because under the Hayes Code, kisses could not last more than, I think, five seconds or something. It was a very ridiculously ridiculously short number. And it was just a a really classically trolly Hitchcock sequence in which he has Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant kiss for like two second pecks for a full like two minutes. And I always found that really funny. And um, I really adore this movie. And uh, it's, um, it's just a combination of angst and romantic angst and suspense. So that's notorious. Um, and I wish I watched on my Blu-ray. So I can't say where, whether it's streaming anywhere, but it, it's great. And one of the lesser, I, I won't say lesser well-known or lesser liked Hitchcock movies. It's just one that isn't often in the big conversation about the best Hitchcock movies, but it's one that is one of my personal favorites. And I also rewatched the Hitchcock movie Sabotage, which I hadn't seen in a long time, I think since college, and I had forgotten a lot about it. It's uh, a 1936 British film from early in Hitchcock's career, back when he was still working in the UK. And um, it's um, a movie that you might know as being infamous for the bus sequence. And this is the sequence in which um, a bomb goes off uh, towards like the last act of the film on a bus. And it's a really, really great suspense sequence, um, again, where uh, you Hitchcock follows this package that is being uh, carried by a boy across um, London, and he's not aware of what's in the package, and the camera keeps cutting to it as the boy gets waylaid, waylaid by other various obstacles, a parade, a uh, street demonstration for toothpaste, and he just kind of walks around, walks along lackadaisically because he's not aware of the contents of the package either. And uh, it's a it's a great show for Hitchcock, but it's one that he actually has stated that he regrets filming because it's it feels it does feel very out of place for a movie that until then is a very lighthearted thriller it follows a woman who is married for who's in a marriage of convenience with a sort of a well-off older man who uh she runs a cinema with and her this man is uh turns out to be an agent for a um, group of saboteurs who uh, are intent on wreaking havoc in london and he's the one responsible for that bomb that her the little the boy her younger brother carries across london and um it's the sequence itself is is like so well made but it's one that kind of takes the wind out of the film um and really is uh jarring tonally with you know the lightest lightness of the movie up until then and sabotage can't really recover after that because something so shocking happened like Hitchcock, I don't, I don't, I want to spoil it for you guys, but he he commits two of the biggest movie sins with this one sequence, which is a kid and a cute puppy, and um, it's I've, I've forgotten about <laughs> the effect of it. Sorry, guys, for the spoiling, but and so it's it's um and it really does like take it's hard for the movie to recover after that and kind of return to the lightness of the the previous hour. So it's it's interesting um, as, as like a a thing to to see like Hitchcock kind of you know um growing his his style and his form especially in this early British phase of his career and uh how sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but the sequence still really great to watch just uh not I guess in this film itself. HC while you were talking about this um 
you mentioned sabotage and I was like, oh, I've seen this. And as you started laying out the plot details, I was like, none of this sounds familiar. And it's only been like a couple of years since I've seen this movie. What is going on? And I looked it up and I saw a Hitchcock movie called Saboteur, not Sabotage. <laughs> I've never actually seen Sabotage, but just in case any other listeners out there were confused, there are two separate movies with uh, with that prefix out there that Hitchcock directed. So, hard uh, saying, Ben Pearson, hard saying here. <laughs> Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched Crimson Peak for the first time, the Guillermo del Toro directed movie from 2015. Uh, I don't know why I never got around to seeing this, but um, it struck me as a good time to catch up with it in sort of like the lead up to Halloween. And uh, I really liked this movie a lot. I um, I don't know why I stayed away from it for so long, but I, I thought it, it worked really, really wonderfully. I think del Toro strikes like the perfect tonal balance here. Um, this movie is, you know, like one of the most beautiful set designed films that I can remember, like the the idea of uh, walking into this sort of uh, gothic manor that has a giant hole in the center of it. And it's like, you know, weather, and snow and debris and stuff are, are just like falling down through the center of it. It's so del Toro, like everything about it. Um, it really feels like an unvarnished, uh, you know, like a uh, an un... <laughs> unrestricted version of, of like his vision as a filmmaker. Um, I guess recently watching the Netflix version of Rebecca, um, which we talked about a little bit on a recent episode. I, and I came away from that, like, you know, thinking eh, it's, it's worth checking out, but like not great, not nearly as good as the book. This movie kind of is, is kind of like a better version of Rebecca than than that, even though it's not the same story at all, but it, it definitely shares some DNA and you can tell that, that uh, del Toro and um, uh, Matthew Robbins who co-wrote the movie with him were definitely like inspired by that story. Um, so I watched this on Cinemax and uh, man, I just, I just was surprised by how much I like this movie. I wonder if we have, you know, any crimson peak stands on this episode of the of the podcast or not, if anybody else wants to jump HD in. HD is one for sure. I know that much. Chris and I are both major crimson uh, peak stands. I'm pretty oh, sure yeah. we've had convos about this film over Twitter, but I just want to say I'm really happy that you read Rebecca before going into this movie because this movie is just a big, big del toro love letter to gothic horror and gothic romance in the best way and while mm -hmm. i think a lot of critics called that um uh re not redundant but um what's the word when it's it's a a movie that feels like a lesser not like a lesser copy uh well you know redundant and um of of gothic of gothic romance um gothic horror i think that it just works so well as that love that homage to the genre and uh it's it's so good it's so beautiful and it's so um arch i really love it yeah the costumes are crazy and like all the performances i thought were really well done i mean even like charlie hunnam who's an actor that i don't really have much of an affinity for i thought he was just like perfectly cast in this sort of um you know, slightly heightened world. And Tom Hiddleston was great. Uh, you know, I, halfway through my wife who was watching this with me was like, is Tom Hiddleston a vampire in this? Like what, what's going on with him? But, and he sort of has that energy the whole way through, but it's not, it's not like um, only lovers left alive. Like, you know, there are separate, uh, there's another Tom Hiddleston vampire movie out there, but it just has that, that sort of, yeah, arch, like you said, yeah, um, that energy to classic it. Classic really ironic great. hero and pastiche was the word I was looking for before. Oh, okay. People yeah, yeah. accuse it of being a pastiche of gothic horror and romance, and I disagree with that. 
<laughs> Chris, you have any thoughts about Crimson Peak real quick? Uh, I, I, I I love this movie. I know it had some like weird backlash when it came out. Like the, the trailers marketed it as a straight up horror movie and Guillermo del Toro kept being like, it's not a horror movie, but you know what? It really is a horror movie. I, I know it's more gothic romance than straight up horror, but it, it's it's got some very obvious horror trappings in it. So I was always a little befuddled by people who are like, that's not really a horror movie. I guess that what they're saying is it doesn't have like jump scares in it or anything like that, but you know, it, it's, it's clearly horror adjacent, but uh, beyond that, this is, uh, this is like, uh, you know, I honestly think this is my favorite Del Toro movie. I know he has so many great movies in general. And I know everyone has their own favorite, but this is probably the one film of his I, I revisit the most often just because it's so just uh, just like so gorgeous and, and just very just a great movie I, I really love this film and I, I wish it had done better although I guess Del Toro got the last laugh because the movie he made after it ended up winning like a bunch of Oscars so in the end he won but I do yeah. wish this had done better at the box office because it definitely did not I will say it does have jump scares. I don't know what those people are talking about. And I do think it has something to do with the fact that people, critic, maybe horror aficionados, look down on the gothic horror and gothic romance genre as being catered towards women. And I vehemently am opposed to that. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's definitely, there's like some horrific imagery in here too. And, and you know, it, it's not like a uh, like a Blumhouse movie where you can, where it's like programmed the the number of jump scares and stuff like that. It, it's more of like that creeping dread that, that is from what I can tell sort of a staple of the whole Gothic, you know, vibe, mm-hmm. like that, that whole thing. It's just like the sense of unease and like being the like inhabiting the surface. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's like, there's almost uh, a literal manifestation of that in this movie where like you go down to this, the lower levels of this like dilapidated mansion and discover, you know, horrors under the floorboards. It's crazy. So um, yeah, if anybody else out there has not seen this and you were like me and somehow decided to skip this movie uh, and if you have Cinemax, you can stream it there. So uh, check that out. It's Crimson Peak. It's great. Um, I also, for the first time, watched Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. Um, I actually relaunched the Not Just New Movies podcast, which was the podcast that I started in 2010 with my friend Tyler. And um, we've been, I think we haven't recorded an episode in something like two years, but uh, we're doing a whole series now where, um, because this is like the third iteration of this podcast, we're reviewing a bunch of, a a new batch of movies that have the number three in the title. So like the third entry of a a franchise. And I have never seen Halloween three before. And um, I mean, it's obviously, it's like the film that's famous in this franchise for not including Michael Myers or the shape um, or whatever, uh, horror fans prefer to call him these days um and i found this to be a very very strange movie it's way more sci-fi than i was expecting i was not i I mean i had no idea that that this movie that the plot of this movie gets as absolutely bonkers as it does like all the other especially the first two halloween movies like they're very easy to explain you can explain them in you know one or two sentences and it, it you know uh, it's very, very simple to understand. The pitch for this movie is like completely off the wall. And um, it's it's just a really, really, really weird outlier of a movie. Um, I, I mean, I kind of liked it as much as like, as weird as it is, I think just because of the weirdness and because it's clearly like a big swing. And I, I said this on the Not Just New Movies episode, but I, I feel like 
the entire Halloween franchise might have gone differently if this actually was Halloween 2 instead of the third one. Because my understanding, and please, uh, Chris and Jacob, jump in and like correct me if I'm wrong here. But my understanding is that like people sort of rioted because they were expecting Michael Myers to come around in this third movie because he had appeared in the first two movies. And this franchise was originally envisioned as an anthology series where there's different you know, characters and settings and whatever. And it all takes place on, they all take place on Halloween. So I feel like if this one was the second movie and we hadn't seen two films in a row with Michael Myers in them, then maybe it would have uh, been better received or people would have been more willing to sort of roll with the punches and be like, okay, even if this one wasn't for me, I'm willing to see what in this in this example halloween 3 would be you know what i'm saying so um i don't know what, what do you guys think about that because i know that uh, we got some some horror buffs on this podcast this movie rules really really hard i think it's great and it's, it's developed a following over the years it went from being the the hated halloween movie to being the one that hey you know this one's actually good to being the one that everybody kind of acknowledges now is pretty great uh and you're right i as much as i like the newest halloween movies the, the blumhouse ones where they brought back jamie curtis david gordon green i want to see the alternate universe the parallel dimension where the anthology series kicked off, each movie was different because I would. So many of the Halloween sequels are bad, and Halloween three is so weird and so fresh and so strange, and so spooky and fun that if that energy had paid off and they had used energy to fuel, you know, ten more movies instead of going back to Michael Myers again and again, I think it would be a stronger horror series. But Chris, I know you. One of the earliest things you ever wrote for us when you first started writing for Slash Film was a post about why Halloween three is great. So I want to hear you say something here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I loved I love Halloween 3. I, I sort of had that same sort of experience where I remember when I was younger, uh, I just learned through osmosis or whatever that that's the Halloween movie that doesn't have Michael Myers in it. And when I was younger, I was like, well, then why the hell would I even bother to watch that? But as I got older, I gave it a chance. And I, I just love how weird and different it is. And I, I love that it really plays around with halloween imagery a lot like as much as i love the john carpenter halloween which is you know a masterpiece and i think like one of the best horror movies ever made uh the fact that it was shot in california really always bugs me a little bit just because it feels it it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's autumn when you watch that movie like everything is way too green and you know i i get it you know they were they didn't even they didn't shoot (laughs) and they shot in the summer so they didn't have any other option but uh, even though um, Halloween three is also set in California, it has like a more autumn vibe to it. And just all, all like the masks and the stuff about, you know, trick or treating and then, and, and the horror thon on, on TV. And it, it just, it uses like, you know, the, the, the iconic imagery of Halloween to, to such an interesting effect that I really wish we had gotten more movies like that because so many of the Halloween sequels and, don't get me wrong. I, I love them all. I, even the really bad ones, I will watch them again and again. Like if no one in those movies mentioned it was Halloween, like you wouldn't really even know. It would just be like, oh, mm. it's you know, just another day where there's a killer running around. And I really like that Halloween 3 really leans into it being Halloween. Like there's all that talk about, you know, the Druids and uh, and and Salwin, although they, they keep mispronouncing it, Sam Sam Hain in these movies, because that's how, <laughs> because that's how it's spelled, even though it's actually not yeah. pronounced that way. And I, I just really love that, you know, Halloween 3 leans into that. And I, I wish, I really do wish we had gotten that anthology approach because, you know, the whole idea was that John Carpenter and, and Deborah Hill 
were only going to stick with the franchise if they got to do that anthology thing. And after that got shot down, they were like, well, we're, we're, we're believing. So I would have much rather have had like four or five John Carpenter, Deborah Hill produced Halloween anthology movies. than just, you know, Michael Myers is back and he's killing people. And again, yes. don't get me wrong, I like those movies, but I'd, I'd rather have the weird John Carpenter uh, ideas instead. Yeah, me too. Especially if they're as weird as this. Like, this is a movie where Stonehenge is involved. There's like laser robots going on. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to ruin too much in case people haven't seen this thing. And and I want to in- encourage people to check it out. It's a weird movie. It's like a. It's definitely a B movie, or it certainly has that feel to me. But whereas the first Halloween also kind of feels like a B movie that's just been like elevated by uh, execution and, and um, reputation up into an A movie. This movie feels like it was a B movie when it was made and still feels like a B movie. And like this weird, just, uh, you know, thing that you would find in like in the, the back corner of a video store, like what the hell is this thing? So it, it definitely has that feel to it. So um <laughs> It's a really weird one. This one is also streaming on Cinemax. So if you have that, uh, I would I would encourage you to seek that out. Even though you know Halloween has already passed, this thing is weird enough that um, I, I think it, it like demands your attention. So that is Halloween three season of the witch. And then finally, I rewatched um, Almost Famous for the first time in probably fifteen years. Uh, and I know that this movie is like a huge movie, maybe the movie for like team slash film as a. Or, or like slash film as a website, like the past uh, contributors and the current contributors. I think if you did like a a collective vote or something, like this movie would definitely be, you know, if not the number one movie, then certainly in like the top three in terms of like how much everybody on the staff or, you know, staff past and present love it. Um, and I remember liking it when I saw it, you know, when I was younger and haven't really thought too much about it. Uh, but after rewatching it last night, uh this one's streaming on amazon prime by the way uh it's it's really easy to see why everybody loves it so much i mean it's it's so intoxicating and it just sort of whisks you away into this world that cameron crow you know the whole thing is, is sort of like based on experiences that he had when he was a teenage journalist following this, these uh up-and-coming rock bands in the 1970s and um it, he's able to recapture that subculture in a way that just feels completely authentic. Like there's not a a false n- <laughs> false note uh, struck in this movie about music, and it's um it's it's just so well done. <laughs> um, Billy Crudup is like unbelievable as as Russell Hammond, the the lead guitarist. Um, Jason Lee, I love his performance as the the lead singer. Um, I mean, it, it's what is there to say about this movie? I mean, I mean, I know we probably talked about it a bunch. I know we've written about it a bunch on the site, uh, on the site before. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, you could do, you know, 10 minutes on how great he is in this movie. It's like unbelievable, but um, I guess I'll just say like one thing that I noticed that, that I don't know if we've covered on the site before, cause I was sort of reading all of our old coverage before. And there's this uh, parallel that I noticed this time that I, that totally, you know, eluded me the first time around, but, there's this moment where um, where Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is is giving, uh, you know, he, he's he's giving advice to the young journalist at the center of the film, and he is talking about you know, uh, basically like find the real thing that that is at the center of 
you know, like, like push all the bullshit away. These people are going to try to, you know, pull the wool over your eyes, just like get to the truth, basically, like get to the center of it. And there's this moment midway through the movie where Billy Crudup's character has this sort of realization after this like fracturing of the band where all he cares about are people and experiences that are real, he says, and they, they go off to this like house party in Kansas. And I, I just thought that that, um, you know, the, the way that Philip Seymour Hoffman's character talks about in so many words, finding the truth, finding the reality, finding the, the real um, meaning in, in the music and the, the way that uh, Russell, this, this guitarist, basically comes to the same conclusion. It sort of underscores this connection, this parallel line that these two guys are, uh, you know, these tracks that these people are on. And like their journalists and creatives are often depicted, especially in this movie, as being on opposite sides of this this metaphorical war that's happening. But I think that connection there, that sort of subtle parallel that plays out, um, yeah, like kind of underscores the idea that like maybe they aren't so different as uh, as they seem. So um almost famous great movie I'm, I'm sure there are several people on here who are like just waiting for <laughs> yes. me to stop talking so they can jump in so peter you go ahead no it, it, it's like every time i see this movie i find new things to appreciate from the innocence of william miller to uh you know how he like is looking up to russell hammond and like in in a way that like when we were kids or when we were younger, we'd look at adults and not see their flaws. And we're getting to see both sides of these where he's like a, a truly horribly flawed, you know, person. Um, uh, It's, I don't know. It's such a great, it it, it captures that time. It captures that place. It has one of my favorite scenes out of any movie ever. I'm not sure. I don't even know why it's my favorite scene. But, you know, after that house party that you mentioned uh, where they pick them up in, in, in the bus and they're all riding to the next gig in, in their bus together, all disgruntled, all hating each other. And, uh, you know, Tiny Dancer comes on and they all unite through the power of music and singing together. And the I don't know, it, it's just such a beautiful scene. And I think Cameron Crowe often... He often gets too sentimental. He often goes too far. And I feel like this, he goes just far enough. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think this is, I mean, I was looking back over his filmography after this, and I still think this is his best movie. Like he, you know, he's come kind of close a couple times, but, you know, I think just the pitch of everything, the tone and everything, like all of the, um, yeah, the just everything. It's one of those special projects, you know, where like everything comes together perfectly. And I know that like, that's a it's a rare thing when you're making movies where like everybody is perfectly cast all the performances are like exactly where they need to be and everything is just so like modulated in a way that um that it never could be you know before or right after that and he just captured something in this movie that um it feels like he's been chasing it you know for the last 20 years and never quite gotten there again but um i'm really glad he got there the first time around yeah i i really want to see him do another film that's as personal to him as this film felt like it was Do you know uh, what I mean? obviously you haven't seen we bought a zoo peter <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's based on that time that he bought a zoo oh yeah yeah i forgot about that <laughs> <laughs> anybody else have anything to say about almost famous uh i'm gonna be the the, the lone dissenter and say i don't like <sighs> almost famous and i'm sorry i'm not gonna say i think it's a bad movie because it's obviously not i just 
it's not for me. I've tried. When was the last time you saw it, Chris? I don't, I don't ever want to watch it again. That's how much I disliked it. I love all the Philip Seymour Hoffman scenes, but that's it. I, I, I am a Vanilla Sky fan. That's where I fall. His I like Vanilla Sky a lot too. <laughs> like if you give me Almost Famous or Vanilla Sky, I'm going with Vanilla Sky every time. Just because, I don't know, I just found that more interesting. And I, you know, I appreciate Almost Famous. I know it's, it's, you can feel what a personal movie that is. Like, even if you don't really know a lot about Cameron Crowe, watching that movie, you could just tell how personal a movie that is. And that's great for him but it's, it's not great <laughs> it's not great for me so again i you know, no no shade if you love almost famous i i can't hold that against you i i recognize it is a well-made film i just i just don't really care for it chris you need to give another try you no. need to try the uh the untitled <laughs> cut the longer cut is that I, I mean i mean oh yeah the 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 theatrical cut by itself is great but yeah the the bootleg cut when um is is even better Maybe one day. Maybe one day I'll try it. I will say this. The bootleg cut has some moments that should have been in the theatrical cut, but it also has some moments that I wish weren't in there, if that makes sense. (laughs) Some alternate takes that I feel like weren't as good as the theatrical. I don't know. It's it's the case with any director's cut where it, it is worth seeing, though. I think it is worth checking out. Have you ever seen the the bootleg cut? Ben? No, I don't think so. And I, I'm wondering now, like I just, you know, I just typed in almost famous in the search functionality on Amazon prime video and hit play on the first thing that came up. And I wonder if I maybe saw that one. I'm, I'm not sure which version I, don't, I saw. I don't, I don't, I don't think the bootleg cut that. has ever been streaming. I think you can only buy it um, on Blu-ray. If I remember, if I remember correctly, oh, okay. you might be able to buy it on street on digital, like from iTunes or something, but I don't think you can stream it anywhere. Gotcha. Okay. Is it even on Blu-ray? I remember at one point it was only available. On yeah, DVD. so I, I I bought it on DVD back when it wasn't available on Blu-ray. I happened to stumble upon it at a video store at Indiana University. And I specifically remember it because I was so excited because you, I couldn't find it anywhere without paying too much for it. And I was just like, oh, my God. And I bought it immediately. But it eventually was released on, on Blu-ray. Okay, let's talk about what we've been eating. Brad, what have you been eating this All right, week? so I'm going to kick things off with just something that I'm, I was so excited to, to mention on the water cooler that I posted about it last week. Um, the holiday snacks are starting to come out for Christmas uh, in stores, and one of the new things that I was excited to try was sugar cookie Hershey's Kisses, and holy crap, these are awesome. Uh, these are my favorite new Hershey's Kisses ever since they came out with the uh, mint truffle ones, which are also ones that come back around the holidays. Uh, these taste like Funfetti frosting Hershey's Kisses. Uh, they taste just like the cream cheese frosting with the um, colorful, uh, like I don't know if they're sprinkles or candy pieces, whatever you want to call you, but um, they're it's it's white chocolate and it has the crunchy little um, Funfetti style pieces in it. And I, I almost wish that they were just called Funfetti Hershey's Kisses rather than Sugar Cookie Hershey's Kisses because they just taste exactly like that frosting. And they, they're just fantastic. Um, both me and my girlfriend were like, oh my God, these are incredible. So those are just now uh, starting to hit shelves. You should be able to find them at like all the usual places like Walmart and Target and CVS and Walgreens and all that jazz. Um, but yeah, I can't recommend enough for you to like seek them out because they're, they're delicious. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll look for them. You should. Um, and then there's also uh, another holiday thing that I found uh, early are gingerbread Oreos. Um, they came out with a gingerbread Oreo before, 
but not like this. The original one they came out with, what they used the golden Oreo cookie and they put gingerbread flavored cream in the middle of it. And they were okay. Um, these new ones are infinitely better because it's actually a gingerbread Oreo cookie with regular Oreo cream in the middle. And then it has these uh, crunchy sugar crystals they, um, that are in, with, within the cream. Um, and they're very good. The, By the way, I, I love when they have crunchy sugar crystals in the cream. They've done that with like the peppermint, yeah, peppermint bark, yeah. bark, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, these are these are great. The gingerbread flavor is is fantastic. I, it's much better than just having a, a plain golden Oreo. Uh, and so yeah, so these these are really good. If you are a fan of gingerbread cookies in general, they they really like give you that just like feeling of you know just having holiday cookies, and I I love that. Uh, and then I also tried a new uh, Monster uh, Ultra Energy Drink. The Monster Ultra line is the ones that are sugar free. Um, so they're a lot better because they don't have crazy amounts of sugar in them. And I'm really glad that they've actually been expanding the flavors that they have for the ultra line. Cause they used to only have a few, but they've been adding a ton this year. Uh, and the new one that they have is watermelon. And I think I've talked about before for, uh, how much I love the artificial flavor of watermelon candies and drinks and things like that. I, I don't know how they came up with this as the flavor for watermelon because it tastes nothing like real watermelon, but I just love it. Um, and this, it's basically almost like a, uh, a Jolly Rancher, uh, watermelon Jolly Rancher soda. It's, um, it's not quite as sweet since it doesn't have sugar. It has artificial uh, sweetener, but it's, um, it's a, a definitely a, like, you know, a refreshing almost summer kind of beverage. So as somebody who likes to find energy drinks that I can have without, you know, loading myself up with sugar. This is a, a, a good new one that I was excited to get my hands on. Why is it that um, food companies or drink companies are unable to capture the true taste of watermelon? I feel like it's either one of these two things. It's either it feels like watermelon candy, like it's like a candy version of watermelon, or it tastes like watermelon, but they've added so much lime to it. Uh, interesting. I've never thought about the, the lime aspect because I've never really felt like I've tasted lime in any of the watermelon flavors, but I, I don't know. Maybe it's just because like the watermelon flavor is, I don't know. Cause, cause the watermelon flavor is kind of subtle. It's mostly just like a, a sweet water essentially, you know? So yeah. maybe, maybe that's, maybe they're just trying to spice it up, you know, by, by giving it this artificial, you know, quote unquote fruity sweetness. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to what we've been playing. Brad. What have you been playing? So I um ever since the uh, pandemic started, um or just before, really, I've been playing Call of Duty Warzone with my friends on and off. Uh, it's the big battle royale version of Call of Duty that you can download for free on PC and PlayStation and Xbox and what have you. Uh, and that's passed helped pass a lot of time uh, during this shitty year being able to play online with my friends. And the uh, the past couple weeks, uh, it ends today actually, I think. Uh, have been really fun because they did a Halloween event uh, called the Haunting of Verdansk. And Verdansk is the big map that they use for the Battle Royale games that you play in Warzone. And they did this whole Halloween overhaul where all of the games are are played at night. Um, they've they added um, some like spooky elements where there's like ghosts hovering around the level. You hear like creepy laughter as you're walking around certain parts. And uh, this the the dumber thing that I didn't particularly like is that they incorporated uh, Billy the Puppet and Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, Billy the Puppet from Saw, um, as skins for, for players, so that when you're now when you're in the game, you see players running around who are dressed as these characters, and they... Um, it's just... 
Are they riding the tricycle? No, he's not riding the tricycle. He, he's he's walking around like a full grown grown ass man, uh, and he's carrying guns and knives and stuff. And then the one cool thing, quote unquote, I will say about Leatherface is that his the, one of the guns that he comes with is it looks like a chainsaw, um, but it's it's a, a light machine gun. So that's it's kind of funny, and it, and it's a little bit creepy when you're playing and you come up upon a player that is dressed like that. But uh, that was one of the dumber things. But it's it's really fun um, because they're one of the creepier aspects of it. Is so during this game, one of the things you have to do is you run around this map and you have to collect, um, open up these crates that have more weapons or armor uh, or kill streaks and, and what have you in, in them. And so you're opening a ton of these while you're playing the game. Um, and sometimes when you go to open one, there's uh, these jump scares that just scare the shit out of you. They have like a big loud noise and this like flash of a ghost uh, in front of you that takes like up your whole. Uh, player display for a split second and god damn it it is fucking terrifying sometimes i have been so scared where like i've jumped back out of my chair because it's it you don't expect it um and so yeah it's it's been really fun to play i i wish it was happening for longer i hope that they do something cool like this for uh for winter too um but it's it, it was a cool way to to shake up the normal gameplay okay uh let's move on to jacob jacob what have you been playing yeah, the new Unmatched set came out. This is the board game series from Restoration Games in Mondo, where it's a combination of uh, pop culture figures and literary characters, all essentially doing battle across a board. And the game's known for having really good uh, miniatures, really amazing board and card art from really exceptional artists. And the newest set is a licensed set uh, with Buffy the Vampire Slayer characters. And it's really neat. It's really fun. And they do a really good job of, of balancing these. You can essentially pick up Play the Buffy set solo, you know, all the, with the four Buffy characters included, or you can mix and match. So you can have like a Robin Hood fight Buffy to Buffy, or Angel from Buffy fight the Raptors from Jurassic Park, or uh, the Invisible Man from H.G. Wells' novel. You know, uh, fighting. <laughs> it's all very. It's a very fun game. It's extremely well balanced. Uh, the, the rule set is impeccably designed. The art's always great, and I'm just very excited by this series. In fact, it hasn't lost a step in that. Even as it add more and more sets to it, uh, the library continues to feel feel like there's possibilities here and how you can teach the game once in less than five minutes and then every player every character you play plays completely differently it is a really unique thing and the buffy set is gonna be for completists and for people who you know love buffy uh which is for me it's both <laughs> so it was worked out for me but yeah uh unmatched is you know still going strong and i like the set a lot i still haven't played this game i'm so tempted but like i haven't had a game night in like almost a year now because of this pandemic. So it's oh, like un- unmatched hard. plays really well with two players, Peter. If you and Kitra want to give it a shot, hmm. she doesn't like lots of rules. Are you saying this is like light on rules? This is more of a gateway gamer game. I can the actual rules to play unmatched. You can teach in less than five minutes. It, it is even a handy dandy card like, with all the rules on it. Like, listen, here's what you want to turn. The tricky parts of un- unmatched come from the fact that each deck, each character, does play very differently. But the, the same rule set applies to every deck. So as long as you know that the basic four rules of the game, and then you understand that your deck may play differently with certain rules listed on each card, you'll be fine. I think that watch a video online. I think uh, Watch It Played has a really good you know demo of how to play, and maybe judge for yourself knowing Kitra better than you know better than I do. <laughs> uh, but I I've taught it in less than five minutes to people of all various you know uh, experience levels. Okay, I'll have to check that out. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I talked about playing Among Us, and HG, you have joined the tribe. What do yeah, you think? Yeah, I have uh, joined the Among Us hype, and I'm terrible at this game, but it's really, really fun. <laughs> uh, 
I'm well, first of all, never invite me to a poker game because I'm a terrible liar. <laughs> and uh, Among Us really showed that to me, to me and my friends. Um, I played Among Us with a bunch of my friends uh, through Discord. We all have the game on our phones. We kind of played it while doing the the chat, the emergency meetings on um, on Discord through video through voice chat there, and it was really fun. So I think Peter probably explained the gameplay of this. This Among Us is, is you know this big hit game that has really taken off recently, and it's an online multiplayer game where everyone plays as a crew member on this space station, and they don't know whether how many if there's an imposter among them and there's usually one or two imposters whose job is to sabotage or kill the rest of their crewmates and um the while well, the crewmates have their own little tasks to do i was at the first the first round that we played i was the imposter <laughs> and i'm like i don't know how to play this game <laughs> so I was, you just gotta kill people yeah well i was scared to kill people so i just tried to i just tried to sabotage and um I didn't get caught for two rounds, but then immediately they, they caught me because I didn't know that imposters can go only imposters go through vents. So I got caught immediately from that. And um, but I, I eventually like learned how to play the game. And I got imposter another time and I lost quickly then. <laughs> so I'm just I'm terrible at being imposter, but it's a really fun game, especially if you have a group of friends who um, it's just like fun to to play these kind of mind games with. <laughs> And uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I can't wait to play again and um, invite a couple more people because we had about eight people this time around, and I think you can play up to ten. Um, and it's really fun with like a large number of people and uh, at least two imposter or two imposters. So it's a uh, it's more of a uh, twist that way. So I really like Impo- uh, Among Us, and um, I recommend it to anyone who is looking for those kind of social gaming experiences because it's easy to do um, and set up, and it's a lot of fun. Okay, I'm going to be honest with you guys. This is future Peter. I'm here in the editing room editing this podcast. And the end of this podcast, we lost the audio for the end of this podcast. So we got up to the very end of where HT was talking about Among Us, but we didn't have the goodbyes and we don't have that uh, those Louis A. Safian jokes. I know this sounds like it's a setup. I know this sounds like, you know, Jacob is on the line to give us the jokes, but he is not. They've been lost for all of time. They'll be back next week. Uh, but so, yeah, let me say the, the regular gist of things. Uh, you can find more of all of our work at slashroom.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter And please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you on Wednesday.